0: This is it. Here we go. This is 20 questions with Pastor Mike. I do this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's in California. And I'm taking your questions live. So you're loading now 19 questions. I got the first one ready to go. And that is from Anana Mustard Seed. I am a young adult still living in my parents' home. My father is the pastor of our small church. One of my siblings has leadership roles but is living in sin cohabitation. So they're sleeping with somebody and they're not married. My father has talked with him but hasn't taken any biblical action to remove him from leadership or from church. The elders don't see a need to do anything either. That hurts my heart to read that. What should I do? I'm the youngest and a daughter. I was told I was taking the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. So what I want to talk about is the rebuttal, the way that they rebutted you. I'm going to I'm going to tell you I think that that your your father and the elders in your church Based on what you've shared with me, right? That the, the picture you've painted here—they're—they're they're very, very sadly and painfully in error. Okay, um, but I want you to have grace in how you deal with them. But I'm gonna—I don't want to pull punches on this. Like this is something that the Bible seems to make it pretty clear how to handle the situation. But first, let's deal with the rebuttal. Then we'll talk a little bit about that. So the rebuttal is you're dealing with. Let me let me let me quote you. I was told I was taking the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. I just want to acknowledge something real quick. This is one of those moments where I don't really, I get worried because we have terminologies that we're projecting onto scripture, and that's not what the Bible's talking about in those places. And this is one of those moments right here. When you say, I was told I was taking the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. The term spirit of the law, like if you go to like Webster's dictionary, it's going to say the spirit of the law refers to. What's the purpose of the law, not just the technical letter? So an, an example of a good usage of this, not like what you're being told, but a good usage of this would be like um, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And they respond to Jesus by going, yes, but who's my neighbor? See, they're trying to get technical with the letter of the law to like wiggle around who they have to love. And Jesus responds with the story of the good Samaritan. So he's like, yeah, love anybody you come in contact with. That's who your neighbor is. Your neighbor's the people around you. Whoever you come in contact with, love them. So this would be like uh, an important um, an important thing to do. And you can't wiggle around it. So when people try to get around, use the letter of the law to get around the spirit of the law, usually what they're doing is they're trying to lower the standards. Lo- not raise the standards, lower the standards so that they can follow the technical rules but not obey what's actually right and good. So your, um, your dad tells you... Um, uh, you're doing homework and your dad's like, no, no, uh, no cell phone until your homework is over. And so instead he finds you on the iPad and you're playing on the iPad and you're like, well, you said no cell phone. You didn't say no iPad. See, that's the letter of the law, not the spirit. The spirit usually elevates. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus elevates and makes it harder, in order, in other words, to obey because you realize the heart behind it. Now, there is a place in scripture, the scripture never uses the term spirit of the law. That is a term that's more modern and I, I like it, you know, to use it, but it It doesn't really work when you start reading it like some people do onto the Bible in places like this, right? Second Corinthians three, six that God has made, you know, Paul and the other apostles sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And this is how I've heard this used. Oh, I hear it used by, by leaders um, or anybody in the church who when they want to call anybody who has too many rules for them too too high of standards for them they want to call them legalistic or pharisees or whatever and they're not really concerned with what the term legalism means in scripture or what a pharisee was doing in scripture or what the spirit of the law spirit versus the letter is in scripture they're just abusing these terms to try to tell people to stop having high godly standards this is not something that we need to hold to as christians but here's an example of the term used in the Bible, not of the letter, but of the spirit that here, the letter here does not refer to the technical rules versus the spirit being the heart behind the law. That is not what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians three or Romans two or anywhere else. He's here. He's talking about the letter as a way of salvation versus the spirit as a way of salvation. You don't get saved by obeying the law, the letter. You get saved by being born again by the spirit, which is through grace. This is a saved by works or saved by grace question. It has nothing to do with holiness in your life of following Jesus. It's talking about how you get saved. That's what Paul is talking about here. When it comes to holiness in your life as a Christian, the standards are as high as they can possibly be, right? We're told in scripture, and this is what would apply to, to your brother who's, in, who's a leader in the church. He's in some leadership role. We're told that we should not let sexual immorality be named among us It shouldn't be named among us now that there's well, you're being too strict No, you're not like this is this is what Paul's saying the heart behind it is Christians should not be known as those who are sexually immoral the world should not see that in, in us Therefore a person who's in leadership who's living that way is disqualified So an example of this would be 1st um, Timothy 3 Th- these are passages that really are talking about the issue and then I want to briefly mention, and I know I'm going to spend a little bit longer on the first question today, um, but it's because I, I want to and I think it's important. So um, we have the qualifications of overseers or of bishops or of elders. These are all equivalent terms in the, in the New Testament. They all refer to the same person, right? Bishop, overseer, and elder are the same person, regardless of what you may have been told or what perhaps I was told when I was younger. But your, your, your brother, let's suppose he doesn't have the office of a bishop, elder, overseer. Maybe he has a, he's in a leadership position, but it's a lower position. Okay, well, so then I'll skip these. Obviously, these would, would absolutely rule him out because he has to be a godly man. Um, but let's read the rules for deacons, which is a much lower leadership position in the church, a different role that doesn't necessarily have as much charge over others' lives, but people still look to them as examples. So deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Here's what they have to be. Not double-tongued, so they, they, they got to keep their word. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. So yes, it's okay if they drink, but if they're like drinking a lot, this is the English standard version, addicted to much wine, uh, NASB would say, same thing, addicted to much wine, um, NIV, I'm curious about the use of the word addicted there, it's kind of interesting. Um, Not indulging in much wine in the NIV, New King James refers to not given to much wine. Okay, so anyway, back to the ESV, just thought that was interesting. Uh, verse nine: They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is to say that they that they're genuine believers, right? They're holding to the gospel, and it's consi- they're consistent with that. And let them be also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This is a generic term that means that they're basically they live godly lives. That's the, that's the generic requirement. Now, the letter of the law, what doesn't apply here because the letter of the law there's no letter of the law. It's a general requirement. Godly people for leaders christians godly people character matters more than skill character matters more than capabilities character matters more Than the things you typically look at when you're trying to decide if you want someone as a leader I'd rather have a bad leader who has good character than a good cha- Good leader who has bad character like they're skilled But they have bad character and that i've been driven to that through scripture scripture has driven me to that point So, how do I you apply this to your brother? Um, well, you don't you're not in the leadership position. So you you don't get to make that decision. It's not on you. Like you, you present the warnings and, and the scripture and you walk them through. You talk to the elders and your dad and you already have, I think. And so it's on them. And by that, I mean like they're, they, stand, they have to stand before the Lord for the decision that they're making. And that's unfortunate. It does happen sometimes. Where people get there's favoritism in the church there's favoritism everywhere in the world I'm not just trying to you know isolate the church, but what happens everywhere can also happen in the church Where the 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 leaders the people who are considered like icons or, or that's probably a bad term to use But those who we look to as our examples and who we trust and who give us guidance and wisdom in life They sometimes can abuse their positions and one of the ways they abuse their positions and in, indicate on occasion is with their family the family of church leaders tends to have um, a lot of opportunity (laughs) that maybe not everybody else has. And so that is to say, I want to remind us of of God's words to um, to, uh, Eli and his sons. Right? When Samuel was just being raised up, just a little boy, the priest of the time was Eli and he let his sons run rampant and do wicked things in Israel. He wasn't wicked but his sons were and he allowed them to continue to do that with the authority they were borrowing from their father and And God just kills off his whole line because of it. My point is that that's in the passage for a warning to those of us in leadership that we do not allow our kids to grow up and become a terror to the body of Christ because well, it's my son. It's my, it's my daughter. They're my kids. That that doesn't matter. Um, you never cut them off as family, but you don't necessarily put them in church positions of leadership because of their familial roles with you. And I think this seems obvious, but it's just often missed. I hope that helps. May God give you wisdom. Uh, and, and for those of you guys who have anonymous questions, as we take all your questions, if you put a, you know, usually put a Q at the beginning of your question in the live chat. If you put... A-N-Q, those three capital letters, will take that to mean you want your question to be presented anonymously. That means I won't mention your screen name uh, so that, you know, just in case that helps you out somewhere. Just put A-N-Q. That's going to be the new policy moving forward. Uh, I hope that this helps because, oof, that's a tough one. Um, Would I leave my whole church over that issue? No, I probably wouldn't, okay? But but it's not something that I would just ignore. You know, I would, I would talk to the leaders, I would talk to the elders, and there might come a point where the Lord does guide and lead you to step aside from, from that and go somewhere else. You're doing the right thing by raising the alarm. It's their job to make the decisions. Number two, Summer Monsoon says, hi, Mike. Is it a big deal that John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin? I haven't heard this talked about much. Wouldn't that mean that they knew each other when they were kids before their ministries? Um, so did did they know each other is a really interesting question that um partly popped up because and i've only seen two episodes i forgive me guys of the chosen those of you who love the show i have friends who are like you have to watch it why aren't you watching it and i just i just haven't made the time but um but i know that that there's they like really play on them knowing each other prior um there is one passage that kind of comments on this um let me see if i can find it real quick um Oh, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, maybe it's here in John. Okay, so th- there's... Oh, well, let me talk about the pro first before I take you to John one thirty three. The pro would be, um, it, you know, in favor of them knowing each other, is that um, Mary definitely knew Elizabeth, John's mother, and they came together, to, you know, while they were both pregnant, they came and saw each other, and John leapt in the womb. You know, he kicked... Um, as a like kind of as a sign to the mothers that 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 God was doing something amazing with them and their kids. And so, um, so yeah, there was definitely that that's going on. Um, but how well did they know each other growing up because just because your mothers know each other and they spend has spent at least some time together. What does that mean as far as like you knowing each other? Um, you, you could try to build a stronger case for this by saying, well, I mean, Mary and Elizabeth probably wanted to keep in touch and being Jews who would travel to Jerusalem multiple times a year for Passover and things like that, maybe they got together. So maybe Jesus and John did encounter each other here and there in various ways. But whatever they knew of each other, I don't think John knew Jesus was the Messiah or Jesus was who... Even though he kicked in the womb, right? But he had no understanding at that point. That was a work of the spirit to just confirm to the mothers. He didn't like think, he's not like a baby in the womb thinking, oh, that other baby through the two stomach walls over there. He's, that's going to be the Messiah. Like he's not thinking anything, right? This is just a work of God to confirm what he's doing. John one thirty three weighs in on this though. John talking about Jesus says, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So th- this means John didn't know. And the question is, did is, is John saying I didn't know Jesus at all? Or is, is he saying I didn't know who the Messiah was going to be? Who the Who the One from God? I was the forerunner. So here I am preaching in the wilderness. He's on his way. The Lord's coming. You know, prepare prepare your prepare the way of the Lord. quoting Isaiah there. At what point, though, did or can we say John knew Jesus though personally, but had no clue that Jesus was the One? And I think that's that would be my theory. Is, There's good reason to think, at least it's plausible, that John encountered Jesus in various occasions, even if they didn't like grow up together. They probably knew each other to some extent, considering the gathering of Jews on a regular basis, considering the close, seeming close relationship that Mary and Elizabeth had, right? But he had no clue that Jesus was the coming Messiah. And that's what he means by, I myself did not know him, did not know who, didn't know that, that, that uh, who the one was going to be, that God was anointing to bring in his kingdom, right? Who the Messiah was going to be. He didn't know. And so he knew, he knew who Jesus was, but had no clue that he was going to be the Messiah. So I'd imagine John himself may have been surprised, right? May have been like, whoa, you know, it was undeniable. This had to be it. But he himself seems to be, John seems to be along for the ride in a very human way. Because here he's telling, he knows his commission. Preach pe- for people to repent, baptize them in repentance, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. He sees the, 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 the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. And he's like, wow, he, he's the one. Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So he's saying these things under the leading of the Spirit, but he doesn't fully understand or comprehend them all. Because later on, there he is in prison towards the end of his ministry, towards the end of his life. And he sends messengers to Jesus. And he's like, are you the one to come? Or should we wait for another? John, here, he's not totally unbelieving. He's just struggling because he doesn't understand. Because even John had expectations about the Messiah that weren't going to be realized in his lifetime. That were more, you know, second coming related. And so he, he, you know, Jesus appeals to scripture. He's like, John, yes, you're stuck in your environment of thinking these expectations about Messiah. That he's going to overthrow Rome and all this other stuff. And you're not seeing me do that. But look at what you are seeing me do. This is my paraphrase. Total I'm adding interpretation big time in here, okay? <laughs> but this is, this is what Jesus is like, look at what I am doing, right? I'm, I'm healing the blind. I'm the one uh, on whom the, the Holy Spirit came. I am, I am doing what Isaiah prophesied of me. So he told him to believe based upon the fulfillment of those prophecies. That being said, yes, plausible that John knew Jesus to some extent. Not likely at all that John knew um, the supernatural things about Jesus. Maybe Mary didn't ever tell. Maybe Elizabeth didn't ever tell. The impression we get is that Mary kept these things hidden in her heart. She didn't tell anybody. Joseph knew. He saw the angel, and and they just kind of kept it to themselves, perhaps the spirits guiding them to keep these things secret as a way of protecting Jesus so that when he does show up, he doesn't get crucified five seconds later. All right, number three, uh, David anspa says should christians be living like the early church in a sort of voluntary socialism as found in acts two forty-two through 47 and acts 4 32 through 37 okay let's let's look at these passages real quick um i'm going to throw something out there that is often thrown out very casually i, I hope it doesn't come off that way But it's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive okay descriptive is means i'm describing to you what happened prescriptive is i'm telling you what you should do also so i could describe and a lot of the bible actually the majority of it is more descriptive than prescriptive it's just telling you what happened not what you should do job's counselors the the, you know in the book of job it's constantly descriptive but don't counsel people the way they did right they're considered bad counselors and they spoke folly So, um, there's an example of a massive chapters full of descriptive, not prescriptive, but let's look at this in the early church. It says, and this is often used to support the idea of, um, voluntary and David was careful here. He said voluntary socialism. Okay. This would not be government enforced. This wouldn't be government taking your money and giving it to others. He's asking about voluntary socialism. Should we be trying to do that communal living and stuff like that? Acts two forty two and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is Acts 2. This is just after Acts 1. I'll pick up there in a second. Where um, the Holy Spirit comes and a bunch of people get saved. And now they have like a new community of people who are believers in Jesus, who have the, have the Holy Spirit, who are listening to the apostles. The gospel is now understood. It's, it's a pretty amazing time. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now this is the part we want to focus on. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And actually, the money seems to be going through the leadership of the church to take care of all of the people's needs. This doesn't mean the leadership is, is wealthy and rich. They're managing, not not profiting. That's there's a big difference there. Um, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, uh, day by day, those who were being saved. Okay, so the, the the other passage you want to bring in is Acts four, and I think I know what's there. Ye, uh, yes, okay, perfect. This is this is great to add to this. Okay, same same season of life. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. This is a beautiful thing, okay? And no one said that any of of the things that belonged to him was his own. But as they had everything in common. Now this is obviously, this is obviously in a positive light. Whatever type of communal living, if you want to call it socialism, I don't think it's socialism in the governmental sense because there's no government involved um, and it's completely voluntary. But what it is, is beautiful. This is a wonderful thing. It's a very positive thing, okay? So it may not be prescriptive, but it's definitely positive. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many, and this is why, as many as were land, were owners of land, people that owned land or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is really beautiful. The question is, am I supposed to do it too? <laughs> am I supposed to do it too? That's the big question. And let me start by saying this. If, if, you, if you refuse to do it, if, if, your answer, if you already have your answer before you analyze the passage, you're not doing Bible study. What you're doing is you're projecting your personal version of Christianity onto Scripture. That's something I want to be careful with. And I want to just check myself before I analyze the passage. Like, am I willing to sell all that I have and just uh, give it to the local leadership, whoever I really trust, <laughs> local church leaders, that we might have this communal thing? Um, and if and if my answer is no way, no way, no how, no never, um, you know, I'm so committed to capitalism that, I, that I, I could never tolerate the idea, then you're not, your commitment's not biblical. Right? You're trying to find a way to support your views with scripture that being said, I, I don't think that's the answer I don't think that we're all supposed to do that Let me explain the context and some more details that will help us fill out the whole story of scripture here First um, Does the church always do this or does it just happen in acts in the early the early Chapters of Acts in the earliest parts of the church and the answer is for the most part It just happens in the earliest part of acts now, what we do see the church doing later when we add the epistles, and it's too long of a study to go through it all today. But when you add the epistles and you add more from the book of Acts and all this other stuff, they are taking care of poor people. So the church seems to take a surplus of funds and they take care of the poor. So people do donate through the local ministry. They gather their funds together and they donate to take care of poor people, especially poor Christians or persecuted believers in other locations. You know, At one point, Paul's taking a, a donation of money back to Jerusalem for the persecuted and hurting church there. But they're not, when Paul goes to um, uh, Corinth, they're not doing this communal living as far as we can tell. They're not. When when Paul goes on his missionary journey, he's, you know, he, he, he meets Lydia, the seller of purple, who, who she ends up getting saved and she gives her life over to Jesus Christ, right? And then she continues supporting his ministry with her continued business that she runs. So she's a seller of purple. She's... She is a high-end market salesperson, right? So she sells expensive things. And she's helping support his ministry as he continues on his travels, which means that she did not sell her business, did not sell her home and donate it to the church. In fact, there's a church that's gathering in her home, which means it's still her home. So why why is it that if this is consistently not happening later in the church, why is it happening here at the beginning? And what's the lesson for us? I think if we understand the Jewishness of the moment, it'll make more sense. So the early church didn't just occur anytime randomly. It occurred at the Feast of Israel. So at Passover, Jews from everywhere in the, in the country, all over the place, are gathered in Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus dies. He rises again, and then Jews hang out or maybe go, go home and come back for Pentecost, the next Jewish feast. These feasts are massive gathering days where they all go to Jerusalem. So there's a ton of Jews gathered together in Jerusalem for Pentecost and that's where Acts 2 happens the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers right they speak in tongues people from all put this when you put this in context Acts 2 it makes a lot more sense they're like I in barbarian Scythian uh, you know I hear it in Greek I'm hearing all these different languages that we all speak I see barbarians, but not a language. (laughs) Anyway, I'm hearing all these different languages in Acts 2 that they're speaking and they're like, we we recognize our languages so they get saved. In other words, a bunch of foreigners who are not from Jerusalem got saved and they don't want to go back home yet. They want to sit at the apostles' feet. They just found out about Jesus. They just found out about the salvation and grace and they've got the Holy Spirit. All they want to do is sit and soak up the doctrines of Christianity. So what do they do? They take all their resources for their travel and they pool them together and they, they just live as one. They just live as one community of people just sitting and, and learning, sitting at the apostles' feet daily, Acts 2.42, right? Breaking of bread and prayer and all these things in the apostles' doctrine. What do they do then? They want to stick around. They don't want to go home yet, but they can't afford it because they're running out of funds. They sell their homes. They sell their stuff so they can stay in Jerusalem and just sit there and learn. But this is a temporary thing. They can't do it forever. What happens to a community who sells all they have they pull it together and then they just live off of those resources for a season They eventually run out and and that's what happens. And then they probably go back to their various homes They start spreading out maybe become missionaries in different times So this was a, a special moment initial beginning of the church a bunch of people get discipled by the apostles and then when they do Likewise likely leave jerusalem. They spread out with the knowledge of the doctrines of christ to various places And we see this in acts that years go by and churches just start sprouting up randomly Sometimes without like the apostles being the ones you know having planted them What I think we're seeing here is this as christians. We don't have a rule like capitalism or socialism right or communal living or or you know not communal living like we don't have these kinds of rules We have our Christian character that calls us to live godly in whatever scenario we find ourselves in And there may be situations where you do want to sell all you have and give it away And there may be situations where you want to start a giant business so that you can sponsor missionaries and you can support the poor All of these are acceptable because we we do need all of these happening in the world And we see all of these happening in scripture So to answer your question, right, um should Christians be living like the early church in a sort of voluntary socialism as found in Acts? The answer is Christians could be living that way if they have reasons to do so as they did in the early church. But should they? No, there is no should here. There's just, you know, life is very uh, random and varied and you should respond to the situation you're in, pray, seek the wisdom of the Lord. Somebody is is rich and they're called to sell everything they have and give it away and somebody else is is rich and they're, they're, um, they're supporting the local churches, they're supporting missionaries and they're doing that sort of thing. Hopefully they see themselves as on the same level as every, everybody, rich and poor doesn't matter in the body of Christ. That's a better principle, right? And it's irrelevant and we're just trying to be good stewards. Um, so that, that's how I take that. Um, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't give us any commentary on, on government at all because it's not about government, but it also doesn't. Give us a policy we have to follow, except that we should uh, seek to live in whatever scenario we're in, honoring God, loving people, seeking for unity, and being generous. Yes, that's definitely every Christian should do that. Number four, Hippoboni, Hippoboni, Boanny? I don't know, Hippoboani. Hi, Mike. Could you share your most memorable experience in leading someone to the Lord? Um, I'm terrible at this. Um, it's like asking me for favorites of something. I have very few favorites. Uh, I don't have favorite songs, bands, or, or anything. Favorite, most memorable experience in leading someone to the Lord. I don't have one, <laughs> I don't have one, sorry. Um, I've, you know, being a pastor who does a lot of, like, teaching in audiences, a lot of the times where I've led someone to Christ has been in an audience, a, a group of people. But I'll tell you what I see more often more often what I see is I just teach consistently the word of God and, you know, uh, counsel and do that sort of thing. Like I'm not even a youth pastor anymore, but as, as I was, um, and then what I see is the kids, whenever the most memorable experiences have been when they just sort of seemed, it seems to happen without me. (laughs) That's the most memorable ones. Now this has been my experience in coming to Christ. I didn't have somebody take my hand and lead me through a prayer rather I went to church on my own, right? And I'd heard a lot of this stuff for the first time. Didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. Didn't know who Moses or Abraham was. Didn't know any of those things. I knew, I'd heard of the Ten Commandments. Knew they came on a mountain. That's about it. Um, Couldn't name more than two of them, probably. And, um, and I I ended up hearing the gospel. And there was no distinct moment of salvation for me. It was like, I'd heard it, and I just believed. And it's, and I, I could not put a date on it. And so this has flavored my approach to ministry, perhaps in a positive way, perhaps in a negative way. I preach the truth and I just let the impact happen in other people's lives. And I've not, I've, I've slowly focused less and less and less on what some evangelists call like closing the deal, where you like guide somebody through a prayer. Not that I never do that, but I, I focus less and less on that because I feel like there's a simple act of, of the will on the part of the hearer that is independent of me and so that being said when I would have I could think of a student who after years of being in the ministry comes to me and then tells me just spontaneously of of their of the change in their life and how they're like I think I'm saved now I don't know there's my life's totally different now and I see things differently and I can't believe what I've done in the past all this stuff those are the most memorable to me but part of the reason why it's so memorable is because I'm I don't see myself as being the one who led them so to speak I just Saw it as between them and the Lord. I know that might sound like a weird answer. I've had times where I actually pray with somebody to receive the Lord, and um, I do it probably less than a lot of people do because I, I just don't want to do it unless I feel that that person really is sincere. And so I'd rather leave you hanging and let you think about it, um, than try to force something. So I know I'm a little unconventional there. Number five, Mason says, I find myself sympathizing with some who have deconstructed and walked away from the faith, though I don't agree with their decision. How can I keep from deconstructing myself? Um, Mason, let me me try to answer a few things here. Uh, Your answer, your question's pretty broad. So I'm going to share a few broad things um, and a few specific things, and hopefully they apply to you, okay? Um, Okay, let me give you an analogy. This is going to be a long analogy, but (laughs) follow me here. There's something we used to call the emergent church back like 15 years ago. People were talking about it. And the emergent church was a group was a really loose group. They didn't like being called that, right? They didn't like any labels because they're like we we reject labels, you know. It was just too cool for school. Um but but the the group, whatever you want to call them, what they have is a lot of criticisms against Christianity and evangelical Christianity in particular. And many of the criticisms were valid. This was the trippy thing. This is what I slowly realized, as they would criticize things and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, you guys have done this wrong and you've done that wrong. And you guys made mistakes here and you have a problem over there. And many of those criticisms were very true. But I wasn't just watching their criticisms. I was watching what they were doing in response, right? Their reaction to the criticism, or you might put it this way. Here's a problem I see in evangelical Christianity. And then over here's what I'm going to do instead, which I will call their solutions. So they have their criticisms and they have their solutions. Their solutions were worse than their criticisms. Their solutions were terrible. Their criticisms were often on point. You guys aren't really, um, you know, you're not you're, you're, not really being, you know, faithful to the heart of Jesus, you know, when, with, with, your, uh, with your living right now, evangelical Christians. Solution. I'm going to make a new Jesus and I'm going to live, and I'm going to pretend that he likes everything I do. <laughs> it was like the worst possible solution. So this is what I see often in those who are deconstructing. They have some legitimate criticisms, although often the criticisms of those deconstructing are, um, they're overblown, like they're made to be much, much worse than they really are, but they find something at least to criticize. And the solutions are things like, well, therefore I I must, I must apostatize. I must deconstruct or basically turn into, um, a non-believer. Deconvert would be a, a more biblically accurate term. So deconstruction often comes down to that um let me find a thousand things to criticize let me let me put a magnifying glass on those criticisms and then my solution is i'm just going to reject it all but so often this is why i point out things like this if you think the bible is has errors but it's not totally inerrant and your conclusion which i don't okay i think that it's inerrant but but if you believe it has errors I mean, you start magnifying glass those things that you think are problems Or even moral issues. You think moral issues, oh, the Bible slavery, da da da, and you have these magnifying glasses on there. Um, I'm going to say two things. One is very likely you're you're having the most uncharitable approach to the scripture you can, and that's why you can't get over these things because you're most, it's often like looking at the Bible with glasses that are full of um, hypercritical perspectives. And then your solution is, I therefore reject Christianity. But here's the thing, like, I don't I don't think that makes sense like even if I came to believe the Bible had errors. I wouldn't reject Jesus Like nor would I reject Christianity? I would think that my doctrine of inerrancy must have been incorrect But I wouldn't reject the entire Christian faith or let's suppose that um, You you look through history and you see uh, people in the name of Christ doing horrible things This is another deconstruction thing right people in the name of Christ doing horrible things like I don't understand how this even relates to Jesus at all People have done horrible things in the name of everything. People are horrible. I don't see how this reflects Jesus in any way, shape, or form. If if I can say that the things they did were inconsistent with Christ, then this has no effect on me except to say, take it as a personal warning, here's the right response, that I live consistently with my Christian faith and I don't become one of those people. There's a lot of the deconstruction stuff. Um, say, say, take supposed changes in the Bible. They always like to quote Bart Ehrman. <laughs> In these, in these situations. Um, Bart Ehrman does exactly this. It's greatly exaggerated. It's not like there's nothing we should debate about. Like, say, the ending of Mark. I'm going to do a video on this pretty soon here, in a couple of weeks. Um, is the is the last 12 verses in Mark authentic, right? But if you think that your faith rests upon this, that's weird. That's like, that's unwise thinking. And this is what I see a lot in deconstruction. I think, though, there's a pivot point for those who are, they say they're deconstructing. And one of the pivot points that I've observed I have a lot more to learn about this this group of people and the things they're going through, I, I know. But I'm not new to it. And uh, one of the things I've observed in those Deconstructing Mason is that they'll, they're often their pivot point. These nitpicky things are actually not that big of a deal. The real pivot point is when they finally decide culture is right about morals. Therefore, Christianity is just disgusting to me. And that's like a big pivot point. Culture's right about morals. And therefore, Christianity is disgusting, and so it'll it'll usually lean on things like um, uh, uh, feminism, LGBT issues, and th- this ends up being something that just about everybody who deconstructs will will harp on or transgenderism, those issues. So, I guess that's included LGBTQIA, whatever. All of that stuff, and and these mostly are about sex. They're about what the Bible teaches about the nature of sexes human sexes as well as the the proper function of human humans in intercourse you know th- this is what it's really coming down to this is a major pivot point and the point at which you push off of biblical morality onto worldly morality here all these other excuses become just the things that are helping you support what is actually a um a moral choice right my morality has shifted the weird thing here is the grounding of my morality as a Christian is the nature of God and the clarity in my morality is the is the information from God, the revelation from God. Okay? So morals are real because of because God is good, so morals are actually real and and binding on me. What those morals are, what my moral which direction my moral compass points, that comes from the revelation of God. So I have some Moral compass issues like I've got my own but we're where humans are like um, like real compasses compasses don't point true north They point towards magnetic north, right? So the closer you get to the north the more you try to get you know Approach the north the more off your compass will be but you have a map that will help you calculate the proper thing Humans are like this like our moral compasses are all a little bit off Scripture is like the true north. That's gonna Is the map that's gonna point us towards the true north? And so on the issue of human sexuality our whole culture the magnetic pole has shifted <laughs> is, is this analogy way too complicated the magnetic pole has shifted and our culture Is now embracing unbiblical ungodly morality in some very important areas Right, they're not just doing it and saying we don't care if it's wrong. They're doing it and saying it's right and good This is where christianity has always been meant to go counter culture Has always been meant to be the map that goes to everyone and says hey everybody all your compasses are off and to me that the encounter where Christianity's map does not match the magnetic north of culture that is where deconstruction really hits its pivot point in my perspective and all I want to say is if you have the clarity to see this then you'll realize that um, a lot of the debate is really about this which one's right the magnetic north of culture or the map of scripture which one is correct and i'm going to go with what god has revealed and nitpicky things towards christianity doesn't really make a lot of sense uh as far as giving you reasons to to leave the christian faith what i often see with deconstruction is they start with a debate on facts let me find these nitpicky fact issues um and then over a while they shift, and all of a sudden they don't want facts anymore. They don't want to talk about the details anymore. They just want broad, sweeping criticisms of Christianity. That helps, but I don't want to get into the nitty gritty details about facts because now it's it's moved over to being more of a heart issue. The Bible's wrong about it, about hell and judgment and and sexuality and the and the, all these and these are all just moral things. Well, I'm going to trust God because He's the grounding of morality and culture. It's weird that we we know culture is has is dumb in the past but we give it way too much respect in the present right humans in the past were so silly and dumb 1950s people i was, I was actually watching a video or a movie the other day where they were they, they they had these people from the past from like the 1950s this little community of people that were living in the 50s and the, uh, the the people on the show came to hang out in this little town and it was funny all the 2020 or 2021 cultural type references that they were they were constantly criticizing everything about the 1950s people and i've realized that our culture is is allergic to the 1950s especially america in the 1950s We, we we don't just realize there were problems okay no no just that would be wise realize there were problems realize we have problems today as well but instead, we realize that, no, no, we, we've made a cultural shift where there were these Judeo-Christian values and we want nothing to do with them. We have our own values. And you can see that the cultural shift is happening. Uh, Mason, my final encouragement to you is this, look, slow down. Make a list of the things you really care about. You, you find yourself sympathizing, write down the criticisms that you sympathize with find out if they're accurate first is there a magnifying glass on them making them bigger than they are or are they accurate second ask yourself when you look at this list ask yourself and what would be the right response to that what would be the correct response not the overreaction what would be the right response well evangelical christians they 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 have more of a nationalistic version of jesus or we're like okay well what would the right response be? okay well to try to have a biblical version of jesus that's the right response right not not a 2021 um internationalist Jesus <laughs> I just want Jesus there's some things I'd encourage you with I, I hope that helps Mason uh, check out uh, Elisa Childers podcast to Elisa uh, Childers looks like Childers Childers and she's got tons of great stuff on that blasting cows says hey Mike some people I know say Yahweh is the name of the whole Trinity combined I thought Yahweh was only the name of the father like how Jesus is the name of the son what are your thoughts Okay, so Blasting Cows. Um, before I answer this question, I'll mention we have no more no more questions for today. we got all 20. I'm going to answer them as best I can with the time I've got, which I can have as much time as I want, actually. So <laughs> to the pain of my mods. Um, but uh, but no more questions. We've got all 20. So Blasting Cows. Um, is Yahweh the name of the whole trinity combined? I don't think that we can use Yahweh that way. I think Yahweh is used... Um, in Scripture, let's just start with Scripture. Let's before we answer what Yahweh used of in that sense, um, the name of God, which you will usually see in you know with the sort of capitalized L O R D. Let me uh, give you guys an example um, from Exodus three. So um, Exodus three two, where it says the angel of the Lord. See how those are little capitals? It's a capital O R D, but they're small capitals. When you see the word Lord or God. Um, and sometimes a couple other words, and and they are put in those little capitals. That's because in the in the Hebrew, it's got the name of God. Okay, it's got Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah or however you want to argue about pronouncing it. So that will help you just identify what you're seeing in the text of Scripture. It occurs a lot, like many, 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 many times. I think it's over, it's thousands of times maybe. Um, it occurs in the Old Testament. Definitely... Yahweh is used specifically of the Father. Can we get this? But we also have Yahweh used of the Son. And I guess it would be difficult to go through all the specific examples, but I'll just give you the summary. Yahweh is, you know, to understand a word in, you know, in Scripture, we want to see how it's used. Yahweh is used of the Father. Yahweh is used of the Son. Right? There's there's even, um, let me see, one specific passage I can think of. If I can find it, just a second, it'll be worth it Um, if I can find it. Um, This might take a second, but I think this is actually a really good example. Um, of of how you shouldn't say, is Yahweh the Father or the Son or the Trinity? This is not a good use of the word. It's kind of like the word God. God can refer to the Son, the Father, the Spirit, um, more often used of the Father, sometimes used of the Son as well, sometimes used of the Spirit. So let's see. um. Ah, here it is. Ah, Genesis 19.24. Okay, thanks for being patient with me. Um, this is about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, it says, then the Lord, and there's those capital letters there, so you know it's Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh probably, or Jehovah or, or whatever. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And it's just super interesting because we have Yahweh raining fire down from Yahweh. The the impression is that Yahweh is somehow locally sort of being spoken of like he's down on the ground, and he's raining fire down. From Yahweh, who's being spoken of as though he's in heaven. There's only one Yahweh, yet there's he's being spoken of in a strange way. We also have what was seems to be a Christophany earlier on in the passage in Genesis 19, where um, Abraham has these three. Um, three you know, beings, persons that come to, to see him. Two of them are angels. One of them is Yahweh. This if a careful study of the passage. One of them is Yahweh. Then we have right after that, Yahweh, you know, two of them go into Sodom and Gomorrah and then the, the other one doesn't go. So it seems to be here that I would think of Yahweh here being referring to the father. Yahweh from a New Testament perspective. Um, excuse me, Yahweh, uh, this, the Son, the incar- uh, not incarnate, because it, he's not actually. Okay, this is complicated. I have a whole thing on Christophanies, a video on Christophanies. I recommend you guys check it out. I want to be careful with my terminology here, but a um, Christophany would be the right term. So this would be the second person of the Trinity, and then the first person of the Trinity in that passage. All that to say. Y- Yahweh is a, a term that can be used like God it can be used of the Father the Son or the or even the Spirit Although I don't know of a specific passage off the top of my head Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1 uses Yahweh to talk about the Son specifically the Son and um, Let me take you to one of the verses on that Okay here it is Hebrews 1 lots of debate on this passage if you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's talking about the sun, right? The sun is the subject. Of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay, so he's, he's called God. But also, what else is said of the sun? Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Now, you'll notice these aren't capital, but that's because this is the Greek text, which uses kurios, the Greek word for Lord. But the Hebrew, the, the verse he's quoting, is a verse talking about Yahweh, right? This is talking about Yahweh. He's quoting from Psalm 102. Um, and in the in their in their oh gosh okay this is a much longer debate to get into I probably shouldn't use this verse as a reference um, but if you carefully read Hebrews one and I go through this in my Trinity my Trinity uh, video it, are we right about the Trinity Hebrews one is calling Jesus Yahweh I believe so that being said it's a flexible term that can be used in a number of ways all right <laughs> move on number seven Glen John says are there two Artaxerxes in Ezra. Or could it be that there is an interlude in Ezra 4, verses 5 through 23? Artaxerxes stopped the building, but later seems to endorse it. Um, Okay, Glenn, this is a little much for me off the top of my head to get into. I seem, maybe I can give you some tips. I seem to remember, um, there's definitely more than one Artaxerxes in history, that I know. There's multiple, so your answer is possibly there. Um, But also, that Artaxerxes may have been a title, not just a name in which case it, it, it also explains why multiple people have the same, have the same name. Some people think Cyrus might've been a title and not a name actually. Anyway, I'm sorry. I can't give you more details on that. John, uh, Glenn, <laughs> Glenn, John. Sorry, man. I, I, I can't help it. Poor guy. It's been happening to your whole life. I'm sure. Um, so yeah, maybe that'll help. I hope. <laughs> Number eight, Eric, are the church and Israel the same or different? Is the church, the continuation of Israel? and heirs of the promises of God to Old Testament Israel. Thanks for all your teaching from Romania. Um, Because I've been going so long in the questions, I'm going to start answering a lot more quickly. But let me say this, Eric. I think it's kind of complicated. Okay, so it's... The church in Israel are not like separate entities, but they're also not identical in every way. And uh, the the term scripture uses is grafting. And I, I think this term helps us understand the complexity. So we have, you know the um the vine or the 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 plant that we're grafted onto. So we become joined to Israel. in a sense, spiritually, we are joined, we don't replace, but we're joined to Israel. And true Israel is whoever has faith in Christ. but nationally speaking, God, I believe still has promises to national Israel. So like that they're going to inherit the land. and when that future time comes where there's going to be a lot of blessings and pouring out upon them, My understanding of eschatology would be, and Romans 11 talks about this, that there's going to be this mass revival amongst those who are biologically related to Abraham, right? They're Israel, physically, that they're going to be grafted back in, so to speak. So I I think that it's complicated. The church doesn't replace, but in a sense joins in the promises. But when it comes to the land promises, the, the one crude way to put it is the spiritual blessings extend to all those who are in Christ as part of Israel. Uh, part of the fuller Israel, grafted in, I should say. Um, But that the national promises are specific to the nation Israel. That's not just about the spiritual ones. Kind of crude, but I think it sort of helps. And maybe this will help too. Oh, what? What? I have a cat cam for you guys. Or do I? Where's the cable? Maybe I'll find the cable. (laughs) She just joined us, the cat. If I can just... Ah, there it is. So um, every once in a while, Moxie, my cat, decides to jump up on the chair. She's gone through a season where she didn't like the chair anymore. And I don't show you, I don't pretend to have a cat present when I don't. (laughs) There we go. Let's, should be working. There, oh, it was working. There she is. There she is. Just so you know, like, this really is live. Just making it happen. There's the kitty cat. Yeah. She needs a haircut. She really does. Okay. Let's go to the next question. And that is number nine from Mahit, who says, is it okay to attend a wedding of a Jehovah's Witness? My colleague is a JW and she will get married in three weeks. I was wondering if it's okay for me to attend because of the belief system. Um, my answer on this, I'm going to try to like answer quickly for the rest of the stream here. But Mahit, or Mahit, um, my answer would be, there's absolutely nothing wrong for, you know, unless they're asking you to participate in some sort of like ritual or religious compromise, you know, during the wedding ceremony. Look, weddings are, are, are sacred and valid, whether they're be- between believers, unbelievers or anybody, it doesn't matter. You can celebrate as long as it's a male and a female, right? Cause that's what the nature of marriage is. And I know some here, uh, on a side note, want to say, well, marriage equality, actually, that's an interesting way of putting it because it's never been about marriage equality it's about the definition of marriage right if the definition of marriage is a man and a woman coming together right for life if that's the meaning of marriage then a man and a man simply isn't marriage regardless of equality issues like that's just not what it means right like girl scouts means girls who are scouts like that's just what it means so if you want to change the meaning of the term then you can argue about equality but it's really about the definition at any rate um uh, Jehovah's Witness marriage, please go. I would I would absolutely think you should go un- unless in the course of the wedding there's some sort of participation they require of you that requires you to compromise spiritually. Um, that would be my thought. And I don't know what a Jehovah's Witness wedding is like. So I couldn't answer that. Uh, Lucy or uh, Luce, Luce says, how do you have a godly sorrow over sin? 2 Corinthians 7.10. When I sin, I repent, feel really bad, and ask for forgiveness. Eventually, I fall for the same sin. Do you just pray for God to give godly sorrow? Okay, so this is an interesting and tough question. Let's look at the passage Second Corinthians seven ten. For godly grief or godly sorrow, and I think New King James says that, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas the wor- uh, worldly grief produces death. There's just two different kinds of grief over sin that Paul is talking about here. One is where, yeah, you feel bad about your sin, but you do nothing. I feel bad, but I just do nothing. Um, maybe I get angry at God, right? There's there's some other response. Um, this is the term I, I've coined actually in counseling people was mismanaged guilt. It's when I, have, when I feel bad, but I just get angry. That's often how it comes out, anger um, or self-pity. These are two... There's other responses, but two of them are anger and self-pity. So mismanaged guilt could be um, I do something wrong and like uh, like I, I'm lazy at work and I blow off work and I lie to my boss about things and then I get fired. And I, I get angry because maybe I can say, well, he, they didn't fire so-and-so. They were just as bad as me or something like that. I find some excuse to ignore my problems and I get angry, angry at my boss. He never did like me. I think he's personal against me. You know, and I, I get mad. Or maybe I, I feel sorry. For like, whoa, well, whoa is me? Whoa is me? Everyone's so hard. Me. But these are ways of me ignoring my guilt, ignoring my responsibility in the situation. And they're very natural. This is why a kid will turn to the parent and say, You hate me when they get in trouble. This is a way of, of, of instead of having guilt, I'm going to have anger directed at you. Some people do this towards God. God's going to judge me. I'm going to judge him back even harder. God, you're going to send me to help. <laughs> I don't want to go to heaven with you. I'd rather be in hell. Like this is, see, this is mismanaged guilt. I have guilt. I'm going to be angry instead. It's it's a childish thing, but it's a superhuman thing. Like we do this. Paul's saying like, I don't want you to have the kind of grief. I believe he's saying the grief or the sorrow when you, when you sin, I don't want you to get the kind of grief that, that just leads to a dead end street. I want you to have the kind of sorrow that says, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And you turn back to God. So that's the kind that leads to repentance, that produces repentance, leads to salvation without regret. Um, now your question, your question, which is question number 10. I had to find it. Um, (coughs) when I sin, I repent, feel really bad and ask for forgiveness. Eventually I fall for the same sin. I don't know how, um, I don't know exactly how to answer some of these questions because I don't know this, you know, the specific scenario, but I will say this. I think that it's, it seems biblical to me. Based on things like Galatians, um, First Corinthians, uh, Ephesians, based on different passages, it seems biblical to me to say that Christians will always struggle with sin. Always, so Paul in Galatians is writing to to, the, to them, and he says like, "Hey, the the flesh." has desires that go against the spirit. The spirit has desires that go against the flesh. That's why you don't do what you want. But but walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's describing the normal Christian experience. The, see, the flesh and the spirit aren't really out here. They're all in here. My flesh, which isn't just my physical body, the way Paul uses the word. He's talking about like that, sin, that sinful center in us. Um, that there is this like desire from within me to do wicked. And there's a desire from within me by the work of the spirit to do good. So walk in the spirit. What I'm suggesting is there's going to be sins where you're going to say, I repent. I feel bad. I ask for forgiveness. And then later I, I fall for it again. Like that's going to happen. And I don't know how in in a casual way to like differentiate clearly between the person who's simply not a Christian, right? And they're faking it and they just go, oh, I feel bad. I'm sorry, Lord. And they go do it again versus the believer who's simply struggling with the normal battle between the flesh and the spirit except to say there seems to obviously be a difference. I just don't know how in mass counseling thousands of people to give you like simple little rules which you can, you can just drop this into your life and boom, you have clarity. Like I, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a personal evaluation thing you have to go through where you ask yourself what's really going on. Um, but yeah, the, um, you know, here's an example of how we don't expect sinless perfection in Christians. Paul, has policies for who can be leaders in the church, blameless, above reproach, husband of one wife. He's got all these policies, right? They're they're um, they're not quick to anger. They're not they're not likely to, to 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 argue and have malice towards people and these types of things. Um, they're able to teach. If if Paul thought every Christian was sinless, he wouldn't even need qualifications for leaders, except for able to teach, right? There'd be no need. But Paul. Realizes that in the in the midst of the Christian body of Christ, there's going to be people who are like argumentative, and people have problems here and problems there, because I think that the message throughout the Scripture is yes, we're called to holiness, but we expect a daily battle with the flesh. It sounds to me like you're just saying, I sin, I repent, I feel bad, but but there are some things where it's like, but when sins are what I will call um, worse sins, and I do think some sins are worse than others, and I have a video on that you guys can check out. It's it's called um, all sins are not the same, or something like that. <laughs> I don't know what it's called, um, but I do think some sins are worse than others. And so, for instance, if your if your pastor is is privately a serial killer, I think he's really not a Christian, right? But if he deals with anger and sometimes he snaps at people and he and he repents and then he does it again later and repents and does it again later, and I don't think I don't doubt his salvation. And I think that there's I think that makes sense, even even if. Some would want to nitpick at it. So um, that being said, Lucy or Luce, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name, L-U-C-E. But um, don't beat yourself up for the part where you repent and ask for forgiveness and you get up and you you start serving the Lord again. There's some sins you're going to struggle with forever. And um, you can get better though. And I pray that God would help you and guide you and give you confidence in his grace that's what we really need is confidence in his grace if you stop believing that god has grace for you it's going to mess up your whole walk with christ and a lot of Scripture suggests that we need to come boldly to the throne of grace right because jesus ever lives to intercede for us like john 2 if any of us sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous so yeah number 11 maria laura laura fessler says hi pastor mike hi maria How do you respond to another Christian who thinks that watching movies or shows with nudity slash sexual content is a liberty they have in Christ because they do not struggle with lust? Um, Okay, let me just assume that most of you know that we're not supposed to watch other people become naked and engage in even imitated sexual behaviors. Like if, if you don't know that, then that's a different discussion we got to have. Um, but the real issue here is they feel they don't struggle with lust, and therefore it's okay. Um, I I don't. I'm trying to find the logic. I'm trying to find like the 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 logic that glues this together. Is is the logic that um, I can I can be entertained by things that are not supposed to entertain me because I'm not struggling with lust. But it, that, maybe that's not the only issue. Maybe maybe whether I struggle with this issue isn't the only issue. Maybe there's an issue of simply whether it's proper and appropriate or not. I think this seems like a category we have to have in our heads that we recognize that some things are just improper they're not they're not good they're not morally pure this is definitely a category that the biblical authors had that there are things that are there's like a morally pure life and if we and if we ignore that and we just and we just say but am i personally struggling with lust about the thing i'm watching that's a question but it's not the only question so um um there's a scripture that comes to mind in Ephesians um, if I can find it I'm thinking uh, well I guess, I guess I'll look at the one in Romans here it might be the one I was thinking of um, <clears throat> okay so here's Romans 132 it, it, it talks about people being wicked right Right? People are wicked, covetous, malicious, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Right, um, One of those, of course, is sexual immorality, unrighteousness, which is just general bad behavior, meanness towards other people, malice, like all those types of things, right? But then, then it speaks of judgment in Romans one thirty two coming on those judgment of God, that God's righteous judgment comes on those who practice such things, right? They're deserving of death, and they not only do the same— but also approve of those who practice them now that's interesting because there's a a sense of i'm looking on with approval at the the wicked things that the world is doing around me and um um, i think that that's kind of a principle we should have there um there's ephesians 5 13 that might be what i was thinking of yeah let me read to you this section from ephesians Okay. Therefore, be imitators of God. Just think of how it applies to us watching uh, movies with sex and nudity um, and and things like that. And and don't, like I said earlier with the question about like giving away all of our goods, don't start with, here's what I'm going to watch. I want to watch it. I don't care what you say. And if you come against it, I'm going to find a reason against you. Like instead, just be like, Lord, how do I honor Christ? My life belongs to Jesus, right? Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral, immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. See, that's my question. Not isn't This is super pivotal, right? Like my question is not just am I tempted by that? My question is also what would be pleasing to the Lord? I want to please him. I don't just want to not cross lines. I want to please him. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. No part. But instead expose them. For it is shameful... It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. This might be entertainment related because obviously he just listed a bunch of things. He spoke about them, sexual immorality, all these, but he might be speaking of it in the form of entertainment where you discuss like, like almost like you're participating through entertainment. I'm enjoying some of the wickedness that they're, they didn't have TV back then, but they would tell stories. Maybe read a a nasty story hear about what somebody else has been doing, um, something shameful. So it so it's like I don't even want to like. Verse twelve might be about entertainment. Is what I'm saying, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But anything is exp- when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, "Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." So we're we're the light. We're not too speak about it like, like tasty enjoyment from those things, but be light and shine light on it to expose it. So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, right? Like what sounds unwise is, well, I'm not personally stumbled by this thing. So therefore that's the only question I have to ask. I can partake of it all I want. Um, that seems unwise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. All right, let me, uh, Move on to number 12. I hope that answers your question. Um, Catalina Islands. Hi, Mike. I've read two different views on 1 John 3.20. Um, one, okay, well, let me read the verse. Then I'll read the two views that you have. 1 John 3.20, which says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. <coughs> Pardon me. I just had to cough. Verse 20. Okay. And your your question, I'll leave it on the screen for people to read it. In fact, I'll back up so you can read a couple verses around it too. But um, your question is, or the two views you've heard. One, if our heart condemns us, how much more will God, since he's greater than our heart? Or two, even though we feel guilty, God knows our heart. Okay. These are two different views. One view, they're obviously total polar opposites. One view condemns me more like if if my heart condemns me, then I'm definitely not saved. And God's going to condemn me even worse than my heart does. Because And so my heart becomes a barometer of, of the fact that God is rejecting me. Um, the other view is to say, hey, even though you feel scared and condemned, you're not because you're in Christ. God has forgiven you. So what view is supported in the context? Um, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But this, by this, we shall know, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So, so far what John is talking about here is, hey, I want you guys to live out the love that God has called you to live because I want you to have assurance about your salvation. That's interesting, right? He wants us to have assurance about our salvation. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So wait, I want you to have assurance about your salvation, but because God is going to condemn you if you don't? Is that what he's saying there? No, I, I don't think so. I think in fact, the solution is is seen in context with verse 21. So for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God's greater than our heart. And I... Not he takes his cues from our heart. Not he's being guided by our hearts. Not that God looks at your heart to figure out what's going on. He's greater, better than your heart. So God's, it's not a comparison. My heart condemns and then God is compared to my heart. He's greater than my heart and he's going to condemn me more. It seems to be a contrast. My heart's condemning me, right? Those who are Christians, your heart's condemning you, but God's greater than your heart, knows all things. But then verse 21 shows you what he wants. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because He we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. I think what what He's saying, to paraphrase, is um, there are yes, th- there's this rule of love, like in First John. Um, if if you love, you're you're from God. If you don't love, you're not from God. But then there is this other area where it's like, hey, what if you're just not feeling it? So I want you to walk in love, partly because it's gonna give you more assurance. It's going to, not gonna make you say, but it's gonna make you more assured of your salvation. And the result in verse 21 and 22 is, you're then gonna have more powerful prayers. This is what happens like when I hear people say I feel like God doesn't love me or I feel like I'm not really a Christian I immediately think about their prayer life And I wonder how bad it is how weak it is how hard it is how every prayer starts with I'm sorry And then there's no confidence to pray for God's help God's aid There's no confidence to pray with other people that all of that prayer life is hindered and hurt because of the the condemning of the heart I want you, John's partly saying here, I want you to be living consistently with your Christian beliefs so that you have that assurance that you really are a Christian, so that you have strong prayers. That's, that's the thing. So it's not about um, the other interpretation. Uh, you know, if our heart condemns us, how much more will God, since he's greater than our heart? Um, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. God seems to be contrasted with your heart, the danger of your self-condemnation here if you are a Christian is that it hurts your prayers. And that, I've, I've seen so many Christians in that, in that spot. I've been in that spot. So that's my view. Number 13, Joshua Samson says, I'd rather not identify myself with any particular denomination. What does it mean to be an ecumenical Christian? That's a fantastic question. It doesn't mean anything. Like, <laughs> Josh, it means one thing to one group and one thing to another. Ecumenical usually means like sort of I'm going to hold hands with Everybody who's part of the church, the big body of Christ, the the ultimate, not the local church, not a denominational association, but rather every Christian I'm going to hold arms with. Okay, that's a good ecumenical. A bad ecumenical is they say the same thing, but then they hold hands with people who aren't Christians at all. And what I mean here is they're they're going to say, ah, Mormons over here and uh, atheists over here and everybody, everybody get together, big group hug. But what I've done is I've abandoned Christ. This to me, I always think of the Tower of Babel. This version of ecumenical is the Tower of Babel where uh, the Tower of Babel, what they did was they got together. They were all working together as one. they were going to build this giant tower, right? But they're all doing it in rebellion to God and not in unity with God. So ecumenical, like true, good, biblical ecumenicalism is when I have loyalty to Jesus and then I hold hands with everyone else who does regardless of denomination, but just the loyalty to Jesus, which does include doctrinal issues and all those other things, that's good ecumenical, right? Bad ecumenical is when my loyalty to you comes at the cost of my loyalty to Jesus. That's bad ecumenical. And so, yeah, I am um, uh, uh, I would consider myself... Um, I mean, I'm part of Calvary Chapel. So that's like a, a we're not, in some ways we're a denomination, in other ways we're not. We don't have the same kind of denominational controls that a lot of denominations have, okay? So there, there isn't like the same organizational structure you typically see in a denomination. So you, it can be fair to call it non-denominational. But the emphasis, Calvary Chapel on its best days, the emphasis has been, hey, let's not divide on secondary issues. Let's, let's acknowledge that the body of Christ is bigger than, and that we can agree to disagree on a lot of stuff, but we have certain cores, a certain core values that we all must hold to if we're gonna be faithful to Jesus. That's the kind of ecumenical I wanna be. But more often I hear the term being used in the negative sense. Oh, I went the wrong way. That was, that was question number 15, and we're going to 16. Daxton H, um, no, that was 14, no. Wait, what happened? Did I lose my space? Give me two seconds. I'm totally confused did that one, did that one, did that one, okay, oh, that was right, it was question 14, boy, I'm just way off base, Jordan Tiger says, what's the greatest lesson of wisdom you learned as you've matured in your faith, um, I, I couldn't tell you the greatest, I could tell you some great lessons, <laughs> what's the greatest, um, one of the great lessons I've learned is um, learning that weakness has inc- awareness of my weakness, let me put it that way, awareness of my own weakness and limitations has incredible value, spiritually speaking. That is a huge and difficult lesson. I only have learned it through weakness. But realizing that like, you know, when you're young, you think you're stronger than you are. You get older, you find out you're not that strong. You get a little older, you find out it was never that important to be that strong. Dependence is better than strength. Reliance upon God is better than ability, capability, self-sufficiency and those things, as, as as valuable as those might be. Reliance on God is more valuable. And so we, Paul learned this when they, with his thorn in the flesh, right, he, he's like, lest I should be exalted above measure, a thorn was given me, a messenger of Satan, thorn in my flesh. Um, and he says again, lest I should be exalted above measure. And then later he, he goes on to say that he's learned to rejoice in his infirmities. Now i to, to think about the lessons he had to learn to say that. I rejoice in my infirmities. <laughs> what? Like, Paul's like, I'm incapable of doing these things for the Lord I want to do because of my physical infirmities, because of my emotional weaknesses or whatever. And then he goes, but I'm learning through this to depend upon God. And that alone, is more valuable than the pain I'm suffering from these infirmities. I rejoice in my infirmities because then the power of Christ can rest upon me. God needs dependent people, not just powerful people. Like this is one of the greatest lessons I've learned for sure as I've matured in my faith. Um, uh, yeah, I'll pass that one to you. You, you. you only learn it by going through it. You can only know it in principle until you actually just suffer a lot and you're like, yeah, my weakness itself has value. We don't usually think about weakness that way, but it does. Kina or Kina Lynch says, what should a new Christian do if he or she has been in a relationship for seven plus years with a non-Christian, they're not married, and the non-Christian doesn't slow down the spiritual growth of the Christian? Um, So Kina, I'm going to suggest that that's probably not true. Um, Okay, (laughs) forgive me. I'm not trying to like judge too much without knowing, but it's difficult to consider. Like imagine if this seven-year relationship was with a believer, do you really think it wouldn't help the spiritual growth of the person? I think it probably would, right? Like if you if you connect with believers, you spend, imagine someone saying, my closest person in my life who I spend all my time with isn't a believer. But if they were a believer and they were spurring me on to serve Christ and they were joining me in serving the Lord, praying, worshiping together, you know, calling each other out sometimes, that would make no difference in my spiritual life. Like, this seems really like we're living in la-la land a little bit. No offense intended. But the other thing I want to point out is this. Let me read the question again. And I want to I want to just point out, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, but it's not the most important question to ask, right? I'm going to read it again. What should a new Christian do if he or she's been in a relationship for seven plus years with a non-Christian, not married, and the non-Christian does not slow down the spiritual growth of the Christian? Um, the these are interesting elements right we I, i'm a new christian so we started this relationship many years ago i just got saved they're not a christian but i feel like i'm strong okay but those that's not all the factors like we, we do need to and, and maybe i want to be kind here you may not actually be saying that's all that matters like you have a character limit on youtube chat so that's all you get to put in but um my encouragement my counsel to this person would be the following um as a new Christian, you want to have everything in your life in submission to the lordship of Jesus. So the first thing you need to do in this relationship is make sure you are sexually pure. I doubt 7-year long relationship. You were not a Christian. I doubt that you were sexually pure. First thing, become sexually pure. And you're thinking maybe they're going to leave me. I mean they're going to they're going to ditch me, right? But this is a this is a decision to submit your life to Christ and that's the most important thing: is is following him, not the relationship. Um, seek to um, first purify those things, and oh man, get some counsel. Meet with meet with some local Christians that you love and respect, who are godly people that care about you. Find them, meet with them, talk to them about these issues. But that's the first step: is just just get this thing pure. Um, A Christian should not be yoked together with a non-believer like in the sense of marriage. We aren't supposed to. But you're stepping into a situation where you guys are already connected in a pretty deep fashion. And so the first thing I'm going to say is first purify the connection. (laughs) First purify it. And then seek the Lord on wisdom about what to do next. Uh, I'm not going to immediately say you have to just break up with him right now. I think that I don't know enough about the scenario to give you counsel on that yet. That's definitely an option. But I'm going to back out on that because um, I think you need godly people who know more about you. Number 16, and some cat (laughs) cam. There you go, kitty. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so um, Daxton H says, how is it just that because a person is born in a specific region in the world, that they are more likely to follow the traditions and religion they are raised in and end up going to hell? Um. <clears throat> uh, let's talk this through is it true that it's purely because of where a person is born that they're going to hell or that it's even mostly like that's the major the number one reason and I think the answer is no um, if we're going to analyze the scripture or analyze from an in, an internal critique or we analyze the Christian worldview then then your question doesn't make sense on the Christian worldview because people don't get saved or go to hell because of where they were born because there is something called uh, natural revelation. This, this is, <clears throat> natural revelation is the thing that that nature tells you there is a God. These are things, if you're doing an internal critique on the Christian worldview, you're going to have to say, Daxton, that, that, that nature tells you there's a God and conscience tells you you've sinned against him and that these alone give you something to respond to and if you embrace the culture around you and you walk in the sins of of others around you that was a decision that you made now we we do have a thing in our um say child development research where we say that there's nature versus nurture nature versus nurture so nature is like how i'm wired genetically nurture is how i'm taken care of environmentally and then this causes me to become a certain way and i always when i was um many years ago when i was uh, doing an ROP preschool class I was a a student in high school but I worked at a local preschool a couple hours a day and um, they did these nature nurture things but I always rubbed me wrong because I thought nature matters nurture matters but there's a third factor we're not considering and that is the decisions of this free will creature that's what we're accountable for the decisions i make as a free will creature those are the things i stand before god to be accounted to you know be held accountable for god's going to deal with me based on what i knew what i could have known and the decisions i did make not based on where i was born i think that if somebody is given less revelation they have less judgment that's a biblical standard that's that's the less they know the less they're judged for that but they're not ignorant of all things so they have nature and they have conscience um so how is it just because a person is born in a specific region of the world that they're more likely to follow the traditions and religion they are raised in and end up going to hell? It just, you, you kind of, you sort of, you have nurture. You don't deal with nature at all. You have only nurture and nurture is why I go to hell. That, that's the, the context of your question. Biblically speaking, there's, there's um, free will and there's God's revelation. So part of the culture they grew up in is they were walking around and they were seeing creation declare that there was a God part of the culture they grew up in is that they were aware of moral right and wrong and that they had fallen short. They they, they can respond to that. But um, but yeah, God never judges people for <clears throat> not hearing the gospel or for being born in a bad location. He judges them for the decisions that they make. And regardless of where you were raised, you did make those choices. So yeah, Daxton, there's more that should be said about this, um, but I'll give you a couple biblical examples. Um, um, Abraham was raised in a, in a very ungodly culture and God, you know, spoke to him and changed his life and he was saved by faith. He just believed God. Do we really think that Abraham is the only person God ever did that with? Like, obviously God didn't call other people out to start a whole nation of people the way he did with Abraham, but, but are we supposed to think that God never speaks to anybody in any cultures around the world except that the people we've read about in the Bible, like that seems strange, a stra- an artificial thing to put on the text of the word of God. Missionaries have account have, a, have accounted um, recounted stories of people who God was already working in them before the missionary showed up. And so I, I think that we need to have a little bit more um, awareness of what God is doing around the world in people's lives. Yeah. So Daxton, yeah, people don't go to hell because of nurture. They don't even go to hell just because of nature. They go to hell because of choices that they make. And they do have the opportunity to trust in Christ and then God reveals more to them, I believe. I have a video on this that might interest you. I mentioned it a lot if you guys haven't seen it yet. And it's called, What About Those Who Never Hear the Gospel? And I would encourage you to check it out. I break this down in a lot more detail. Number 17, Patrick Schmidt in 2 Peter 3.10. It says that on the day of the Lord, God will destroy the world and its elements with fire. Is this a literal or figurative fire and why? And why? Okay, 2 Peter 3.10. Um, Okay, The, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So is this a literal physical fire? Um, it's it, it, it. I'll just say this. It seems to involve literal physical heat. That It seems to. Okay, why? Because I'm just trying to read it as plainly as possible. I don't want to be overly literalistic. Um, he says the heavens are going to pass away with a roar. Okay, so that what we can get from this is that heavens themselves and he uses the plural there he's probably talking about all of all of the above like earth and then everything else um like you start with the universe and it's going to pass away with a roar meaning it won't be like a silent right but there'll be something really magnificent that happens it doesn't just disappear but there's like there's a roar of some kind it's it's a it's raucous is the term i'm thinking of and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved okay so we're talking here about like sun moon stars those types of things now they're already on fire the stars (laughs) the sun's already on fire but we're talking about like a type of like destruction some sort of almost like a big bang two you know and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed and now that's talking about judgment that's not talking about anything physical here it's talking about judgment um but then what happens next He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and be dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He seems to be talking about some kind of literal heat, right? Even if it's not fire like what comes out of a lighter. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So it's not just a destruction. That we're interested in—it's the new creation, the recreation of a perfect universe. That's the kind of thing we're actually looking for. So I would take those to be fairly literal because it seems like the most obvious understanding, and there doesn't seem to be any problem with the more literal sense. And he reiterates himself multiple times. He's talking about heat and melting and burning. So that be my view there. Number eighteen, Andrew Orr says, "Did Jesus's family not believe in him as Messiah in the?" answer to your question seems to be, no, they did not. Um, let me take you to a passage real quick that talks about this. John 7, 5. Um, here's where his brothers taunt him. So after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews feast of tabernacles was at hand. All the Jews go to Jerusalem for tabernacles for that feast. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This is, this might seem encouraging, but it's, it's a sarcastic taunt. They don't believe that Jesus is really doing these things. That's why they say, if you do these things and they want him to go and show himself as a taunt, they don't expect him to. They think he's going to be killed. They, in other words, are siding with the Jewish leaders. Um, you know, Jesus, you're, you're obviously not who you say you are. Remember when he did go to, to uh, Nazareth, his own hometown? He didn't do very many works there, very many miracles there. Chances are his brothers hadn't seen much to evidence who Jesus really was. Mary kept a lot of it to herself, but even she seems to be a little bit opposed, a little bit questioning of what Jesus is doing. Uh, I'll come to a passage on that in a second. Let me finish this one. Verse five gives us the commentary. Even his brothers did not believe in him. So they didn't believe in him, right? Yet James, one of his brothers, he becomes an an apostle, a leader in the church. Not too long after that, when you get to James chapter one, right? James, a bondservant of Jesus, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the brother of Jesus, but he doesn't even call him his brother right here. He calls him the Lord because he became converted. It seems to be the resurrection of Jesus that converted James. And what would it take for you to believe your brother was the Lord? You know, was the Messiah, was 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 God with us? Um, well, seeing him rise from the dead, that might do it. Um, now, let me see. Um, let me find the other passage. Um, Mark three. Uh, Mark three. This is the other one where Jesus is. Uh, mom is involved in this, who obviously she knows, right? Listen, she knows for sure Jesus is divine, divinely, like something's amazing about Jesus, right? He's, he's the one, he's the Lord, but she may also have had some strange expectations in her own mind because their culture had lots of messianic expectations that Jesus had to work through. Mark three thirty one, and his mother and his brothers came, mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Notice it's all of them, not just the mom, it's the brothers too. It's not just the brothers, it's the mom as well. And they want him to stop. What is he doing? Um, He's preaching, he's casting out demons, he's doing things. And they come to visit, and they're like, hey, can you come come out here? (laughs) Let's talk. They want to slow him down. And a crowd was sitting around, they tell him, verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about them said, Uh, at those who sat around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He's my brother and sister and mother. Uh, Notice this, that in the early church, if they had, I know this is a total side note, but if there had been the kind of like Marian dogmas that the Roman Catholic Church has currently and and even they have in some other places and like I think Eastern Orthodox holds certain ones, but um, I'm not sure about that, but um, but if, if the early church had believed what, modern say Roman Catholics believe about Mary they never would have written this he never would have said who are my mother and my brothers he would have said who are my brothers he never would have mentioned mother because they think Mary is like the mother for the whole church and Jesus is like yeah my mother's anybody who believes in Jesus who believes in and seeks the kingdom you know um, because it wasn't a special, a special role in that sense all that to say his mom and his brothers seem to be here hindering his work and Mary seems to be part of it, at least at that moment. So all I can say about Mary, knowing all I know about her, she's different than the brothers in this. Mary was probably confused about exactly what Jesus would do. She had information from God, but didn't exactly know how it was all going to pan out. It made sense in the, in the aftermath. The brothers just didn't believe. They just didn't believe that Jesus was that special to start with, it seems. Um, that would be my understanding. 19. Michael Card, can you explain the Greek word rhema in Ephesians 6 when it talks about the sword of the spirit is the word of God? Is it scripture or like a word of wisdom, knowledge, or prophecy? There's a lot of confusion that goes on nowadays about the word rhema and logos. Um, Let's go to Ephesians 6 and I can give you guys a few thoughts on it. Here we go. Ephesians 6 um, gives us the full armor of God and tells us to take it all up. One of the pieces of the armor in verse 17 is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, what I can do for you guys is actually bring up, at least for myself, and I'll share it with you. Um, Ephesians 6, 17. So the word for word here is not Lagos, right? Um, it would be uh, rhema. there it is okay um now some people this is this is this is the lexicon on the word "rema." that's that looks like a p but in greek it's a r okay so it looks like a like a weird p but rhema that looks like an n but it's an a it's a vowel and anyway the other ones look kind of like right so um this word rhema is sometimes compared and contrasted with logos and there are some who are like logos is like the word of god like the whole word of god you know like the bible and then a rhema is like a specific word a spoken word like a sentence like i have a special word for you brother i've got a rhema for you this isn't probably how their word the, those words are used in greek actually this is very much modern this is probably not accurate so let me read some definitions For rhema, right? That which is said, a word, a saying, an expression, or a statement of any kind. Okay, so rhema can be an individual statement. Um, Another, um, two, an alternate understanding of the word. An event that can be spoken about, a thing, object, matter, or event. Okay, so a rhema can be a word that is spoken a word that is spoken. Now, is that God's word or is that like an extra biblical revelation from God? That It has nothing to do with the definition because this word doesn't have a supernatural context. It's just a word. It's a word for like when you speak a phrase typically. So the word of God in context of Ephesians 6, to not go too hyper-spiritual with it, the word of God would be possibly not just the Bible in general, but holding up the sword of the spirit would be specifically what the scripture says about this issue. So this verse for that issue, this verse for that issue, having, being equipped with the word of God isn't just that I have a Bible, but it's my application now would be that it's my ability to actually have specific teachings from the Bible that apply to this situation, that give discernment into that scenario. So there, I would say, Rhema could have that connotation in that verse, Um, but I wouldn't want to go too far with it. And some people act like Rhema is, rhema is um, I've heard this before maybe maybe it's not as popular as been, I'm led to believe but some people think rhema is like when God gives you a supernatural extra biblical word that's a rhema well, well no rhema just means phrase it's like, <laughs> just a phrase it could be scripture it could be a saying it could be it doesn't even have to, have to be from God but when you call it the rhema of God well then you, you need to know what God says about these situations alright number 20 last question from Riley May who says Referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel, who was the fourth person in the furnace is this Old Testament evidence of Christ. Thank you. Let me go right there. Um, Let me um, me find it, just a second. We're going to look at the passage because whenever we're answering these questions, the rule is whether you agree with my interpretation or not, that's fine. But the rule that we want to get, the rule that we want to apply, is look at it in context, right? Get our get our interpretation by looking at the passage in context. Um, so. Um, backing up just a little bit. Then these men were bound in their coats and their trousers and their turbans and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, Did not did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Um okay, that, that that's about all we're going to get about the fourth I don't think the fourth is mentioned at all after that verse to to my knowledge in the king in the new king james version he's like the son of god to a christian this immediately a new from the new Testament perspective immediately you're like oh it's like jesus right but if you look there's a footnote here um the footnote here you can't see it on your screen but it says or a son of the gods a son of the gods well that's a little different um, let me look at, say, the English, that's the new King James. English Standard, actually, I think we'll translate it that way. Daniel three twenty-five. the fourth is like a son of the gods. Okay, what is he talking about, a son of the gods? Well, from King Nebuchadnezzar is not a Jewish king. He has all kinds of weird beliefs. So what he's saying is the fourth is not Jesus. He's saying the fourth is some sort of supernatural being. Right? the fourth is not just a human in the fire the fourth is a supernatural being that's what king nebuchadnezzar is saying so he calls him a son of the gods nasb puts it this way like a son of the gods niv puts it this way like looks like a son of the gods does that mean that the one in the fire now let's analyze this the one in the fire was a son of the gods that that's the right terminology to describe um no it's not really relevant we're getting this information from the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar, who in the book is not the most uh, spiritually aware individual, right? So he he looks and he's like, hey, um, from my perspective, this is a supernatural being. That's all he's really saying. Now, from a Christian viewpoint, I think we have other passages of scripture that might support the idea that this is a, actually a Christophany. And... Um, one of the reasons is because of the the way that God talks about being with them through the fire, that he describes it himself being with them through the fire later on in scripture. And this may be an allusion to, maybe, this is a possibility, an allusion to the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego incident. Now, if that's the case, I will be with you. Then this might be a hint that this, the, the supernatural being that was there with them in the fire was actually God himself. And when you add to this all the other Christophanies in scripture, I think you start to have a stronger case that the implication is that this is actually is actually the second person of the Trinity. Um, for this, I have a video, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a link to it both in an, on an in-screen over here somewhere, and also in the video description on Christophanes, where I go verse by verse through a bunch of examples of what I think are Jesus showing up in like person in the Old Testament, including likely in this passage, so I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but other ones that are, I think, even more clear, and when you add them all together, it starts to feel like this is happening a lot in the Bible, and I'll link that below as well as uh, on an in-screen up here in the last 20 seconds of the video, and thank you guys for joining me. I hope this is helping you learn to think biblically about everything. I will be with you on Monday. I'm going to bring you a teaching dealing with tons of apologetics in the burial of Jesus, like was Jesus really buried? Did Joseph Pardon me, did Joseph of Arimathea, was that a real guy or is that a legend? Is the, is the tomb historical? Does archaeological evidence support that? Do, say, Bart Ehrman's rebuttals to the empty tomb, do they are they successful? Uh, is he maybe leaving out pieces of evidence that are kind of important? Yes, he is. <laughs> so, all right, y'all. Thank you so much. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.